And I would ask you now to open to Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 9, make my comments based on those verses. I suppose I could really go through the whole chapter. It's, um, it's very instructive. It's very well-known, and it's sort of a course in Christianity that begins at the beginning. And so let's go there to the beginning. And so Solomon writes, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of a father, and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. O father, let us receive the wisdom of God as sons and daughters to a loving Father, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs may be the only book in the Bible that tells you at the beginning um, what the purpose of it is. So what's the purpose of it? Well, the Proverbs of Solomon are written to know wisdom and instruction. Friends, in case you haven't heard, there's wisdom and there's instruction, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, James wrote, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion. Boy, we are at a time when discretion would be good, and what I mean is discernment, knowing good from evil, right from wrong, knowing what would make for a good choice and what would make for a bad choice. It seems we've lost some of what, what should be basic principles of living. But we have a, a manual here. We have a book. And Solomon wrote this to all who trusted in the God of Israel. And people came from miles around, thousands of miles, from other empires. They came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to sit at his feet. And if you go back to the Uh, book of first kings you'll find that this is the case and they came in and they sat before him and and he would teach them and instruct them and i'm talking great people queens and kings the queen of sheba came from afar to hear the wisdom of solomon and so he tells us this one thing the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge Well, I could tell you, you could go through many years of schooling and never come across that phrase, although there was a time when you would necessarily have come across it in your learning, at least in the colonies that became the United States, because when Harvard College was founded as the first college on this continent in 1638, it was engraved over one of the archways walking into the campus, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In this case, knowledge and wisdom are kind of used interchangeably. They're not exactly the same, but you'll see in the couplet he said, but fools despise wisdom, equating wisdom with knowledge. 
So the wise man fears the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. You know, I've always said, friends, and I hold to this, atheism is the first step toward insanity. And the Christian, the man of faith, the man who understands that God is the author of truth, and that he's the source of all truth, to put away God means your search can never come to truth. And so faith increases mental acuity. And you see it happening as soon as people get saved. As soon as people get saved, they begin to see the world and life more clearly. They get discretion, as it were. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Friends, I can tell you, a man once said to me, all I want to know in life is where I'm going to die, and I'm never going to go there. It was a joke, but in reality, it's no joke. You don't know where, do you? You can't know where, and of course, I couldn't tell him where he was going to die, unless it was right there at that moment, and I was really mad. But um, (laughs) you don't know where, you don't know when, but the fact of death is certainly assured. Friends, I've said it many times, if we weren't going to die, you wouldn't need religion. You would have an eternity to figure things out, but you don't. You have an eternity, if you've trusted Christ, to live in the truth. You can't know when, but the fact of death is certainly assured. And when that moment comes, everything you've known in this life will be futile. It'll come to nothing. All of life comes to that one moment of history. And there'll only be one piece of wisdom worth having at that time. And the preacher gives it to us in verse 7. He says very succinctly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the second part's like it. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So there's the wise and then there's the fools. And that concept is carried throughout the Proverbs. Imagine, friends, that the works of a man are secure to some extent. The works of a man are secure. The things he's built, the things he's written, perhaps, or taught or contributed to. He may have offspring, children to mourn him. He may have loved ones who will certainly miss him when he's gone. But neither he nor they chose wisdom, because wisdom begins with God. And to live apart from godly wisdom is to die apart from God. You didn't learn the the first lesson. What makes you think you're eligible to learn the last lesson? And so there's really only one thing you need to know in life. There's but one fear that should consume all other fears, and that is the fear of God. I talked about it at length last week from Psalm 128. I have to tell you, I've preached now for 26 years, and I really believe that last week I got the most commentary after the service on the content of that sermon, and I'm talking about positively so. The concept of fearing God has quite gone out of style. We don't like fear anymore. But if you don't like fear, begin with the fear of God because it subsumes all the other fears. Friends, belief, fear of man is cowardice. Fear of God is courage, and you stand in it. Matthew Henry commented on this. He said, to know, or those know enough who know 
How to Fear God. If you're not familiar with Matthew Henry, he was a 17th century Puritan in England. He wrote a great set of commentaries on every book of the Bible. To know, or rather those know enough who know how to fear God, he writes, who are careful in everything to please him and fearful of offending him in anything. This is the alpha and the omega of knowledge. Now, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you know what he's talking about. The alpha and the omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and it's also a name that Jesus Christ gave to himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of your faith. And he calls the fear of God, which is an understanding of this concept, the Alpha and the Omega of all knowledge. In other words, friends, to know many things, but not to know God, is to know nothing deeply while you live and nothing serviceable after you die. To know many things, but to not know God is to know nothing deeply while you live and nothing serviceable beyond this life. Friends, God is crying out for people to know him. He wrote a whole book. It's a bestseller. In fact, the bestseller of all time. And it never ceases to be. Friends, your vaccine may rescue you for the moment, but no one is immunized against death. There are no antibodies that can protect you from the final ailment. We all catch it in the end. Say, what did you die of? Say, I don't know. Old age. <laughs> you just wear out at some point. Woody Allen once quipped in a movie. Now, you're probably thinking, well, how did he go from a Puritan Matthew Henry to Woody Allen? It takes a gift. It takes a gift. <laughs> He once quipped in a movie scene where he's challenged to a duel, and the man said, this duel is to the death. And he said, oh, I can't do anything uh, to the death. Um, doctor's orders. <laughs> I have an ulcer, and he says dying is the worst thing for it. <laughs> now, in order to find that quote, I, I had to contact Daniel yesterday. Of course, he, he's, the, he's, the, he's the Woody Allen scholar of the church, right? pretty, pretty sure. Friends, we are a society in search of everlasting life. Are we not a society in search of everlasting life? How many potions? I keep, got, I keep seeing this, this advertisement for these pills, fruits, veggies. They do everything. They cure cancer. <laughs> they make you young and youthful and healthy. I, I mean, I just want to, like, OD on that stuff. <laughs> I could use all that. But we're a society in search of everlasting life. We've heard that everlasting life is out there. In fact, the psalmist, or rather Solomon says here in the Proverbs, wisdom calls aloud outside. Friends, there's things to be learned. She raises, he's talking about wisdom now, he personifies wisdom as a woman. All right? She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. Friends, we want to live... But we want it our way. We want life apart from authority. And so we recoil at the thought of a deity who gives us ultimatums. We don't like the ultimatums. We recoil against that. 
And when we hear the preacher in the streets of the city or in the halls of commerce or in the sanctuaries of the churches, we resist the only path to eternal life. We are a society hell-bent on youthfulness. But friends, newsflash, you can't really keep it. You might paste up for a while. You know, get the right cosmetics or pills or exercises. But we all know that we're going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. So carnal man has imagined that to prolong the inevitable is the best course forward. All right, I'm going to die, but let's make this last as as long as possible, right? I'm always amazed when we stare into a coffin at a wake and the mourners say, he looks good. (laughs) Have you heard that? They say it at every wake. They did a good job on him. He's dead. I've heard people say, he never looked so good. It was the pills, friends. But there he is. <laughs> I've said it myself. We imagine, we imagine that it's youth that separates us from death. Have you noticed that with this youth culture? All the movie actresses. and act- I just hope some of them got plastic surgery and we don't know. Because the ones that you know, it looks pretty bad sometimes. But they're after something. And I don't say it to, to poke fun, really. They're after something. They have, a, they have an image to keep up. And age wasn't in the game plan. Right? It's youth, friends. It gives us physical strength. You don't know how often people have said to me, someone said to me this morning, and I can say it to you as well, I just don't have the, the strength and the vigor that I once had. It's youth that gives us that. Physical strength, vigorous health. Have you noticed how concerned our world is with longevity? I think some people read the obituaries just to see who they beat. There are potions and supplements and power drinks and pills, and we could take them all, and we could look and even feel younger. Yet in the end, what we've gained, what have we gained but a few more sinful years to offend God and to resist the wisdom of God? Solomon tells us that so long as we resist the one truth, the one true beginning of all knowledge, the one central ingredient in the thing we seek, we will die apart from God and forfeit what little knowledge we do have. I've spent my ministry, friends, trying to impart the fact that our God is an orderly God. He does things in order. He's not disorderly and frantic. Gwen Kimball used to say, God is not at his wit's end. No, God's an orderly God. And all that may be called knowledge must begin at the beginning or the student must start over. But there's really no starting over. For a man is appointed once to die and then the judgment, the Bible tells us. You get one life. I could say it this way. You get one try. You get one shot. And maybe you don't like the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise knowledge and instruction. Maybe you don't like it. But he's in control. I may not like that the sky is blue because it's not my favorite color, but that will never make it another color. We're in the game, and this is it. And our God gives ultimatums. 
To claim to have wisdom apart from a knowledge of God is like a rocket scientist who has no real understanding of gravity. He'd never get it off the ground. It's like a general leading troops in a battle but has no interest in military tactics. Uh, You guys go over there and see what you can do over there. (laughs) To despise the fundamental truth but still expect success in your chosen path would be like a landscaper who hates to be dirty or an athlete who hates to be sweaty. Or a doctor who can't stand to be around sick people. Should have thought of that ahead of time. All throughout the Proverbs, the writer contrasts the wise man and the fool. But if fear of God is truly the beginning of wisdom, then the believer is the wise man and the unbeliever is the fool in every case. Now really, I have to qualify that. All right, I have to qualify that for you. Because obviously, to fear God is to recognize who He is. And to believe that he exists. You are therefore a believer. That's not to say the saints, even the great saints, can't forget their fear of God for a time and go astray. And that needs another sermon or a sermon series. But I want to make that qualification as I go through this. And I'll say something of it as we go into this. All right? The fear of the Lord, knowing that Jesus Christ is righteous doesn't insulate you from mistakes in the future, you understand. Or even from willful rebellion. So if you begin with the fear of God, you will proceed and live your life as a child of God, as a son or daughter who lives their life to please Him, and in the end finds everlasting nearness to Him. Your fear of God puts you close to Him. You understand him. If we could have a concept of what he is, we would fear him with a right sense of reverential fear. And the promise of Proverbs is that the rewards for fear, the dividends of wisdom, begin in this life and take us to the next. Friends, the dividends, the payments, the rewards of understanding the basic theology that God exists. He's the creator of the universe, has provided a savior. The understanding of that begins to profit you in your walk while you're yet here. You know, I was sitting down with uh, Gwen Kimball the other day, I told you, for for several hours. And, um, And we were talking about life and the mistakes that we had made. And she talked about being present when I made my testimony about the life I left behind. And I said something to her that I want to reiterate. I said, I so wanted to leave that life behind. I didn't want that one anymore. I didn't want that. you got to start over at Truth 101, the fear of the Lord. And so the Proverbs offer offer practical, day-to-day wisdom on all subjects and aspects of life. And I'm presuming most of you have read through the Proverbs or turned there from time to time. The book offers the reader God's detailed instruction to deal successfully with practical things, right? He speaks on devotion, on parenting, on child-rearing. He tells the reader how to be a good neighbor or a good friend. The book speaks on being a good son or daughter or student or learner or a good citizen. Or an honorable businessman. The Proverbs teach us all these things. A life well lived for God is an investment not only in your own eternity, but for everyone who receives wisdom from you. And hence, 
the address of Solomon to sons and daughters. It's a multi-generational blessing. And so Solomon continues to address his teaching to the young, to sons and daughters. Even Friends, even the pagan world has a concept of this. Pythagoras, remember the guy with the theorem? <laughs> he said, first worship the immortal gods and honor your parents. He understood there was a concept of deity above us that des- was deserving of honor. No, he couldn't be called a believer in God or a Christian or a... Christ said was yet to come 300 years after Pythagoras, but uh, he was on to something. Even the ancients had this conception that you look vertically first to God and then horizontally first to your parents. And so there's, in his words, at the same time, a lack of divine understanding, but with a nod to deity in the generic sense. And so for the great thinkers of the ancient world, even they began with a vertical gaze unto God, or the gods in his case, and then a horizontal shift to the parents who were given to us by God. Friends, your parents aren't only your first neighbors. They're your first gift of God. You are the gift to your children. And so what did Adam do when he ate the fruit? He suspended the first directive. He forgot the fear of God. He was enticed out of it. That's why Solomon says down in verse 10, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Boy, Adam could have used that. Eve could have used that, huh? He suspended his first directive. He forgot the fear of the Lord. The abundance of the garden was his to enjoy. His world was his to govern. The fruits and delicacies of the earth were his alone to reap and consume as he would. But all this abundance was conditioned upon this one thing, this first directive, the fear of the Lord. Obey God, friends. Do not question his authority over you, and you'll know his love and the privilege of being close to him. Disobey and you'll be ejected from his presence, and armed angels will guard the way back, if you know what I'm talking about. What did David do when he took Bathsheba to his bed? He suspended his essential fear. What did Peter do when he denied Christ, and Judas when he betrayed him? What did they do in those moments? They replaced the fear of God with the desires of the moment. And that is what the teacher here Tells us not to do. Even Solomon, friends, the wise, chose in the end to betray the directives that fear had taught him and should have been ingrained in him. So we're ever more watchful due to the failures of such men. I sometimes wonder if men of such wisdom and stature did not make an idol of their knowledge and the attention they received for their wisdom. Can you really... Be so wise, so smart, so wise in the Lord that you actually stand yourself up against God and look to your own wisdom. Isn't that what Lucifer did? Knowledge is good in its place, friend. Knowledge, even great knowledge, will never replace, though, honest devotion to God. That's the first response when you fear God is to bow down and worship him. 
Knowing truths, friends, will never replace knowing truth. Studying deeply will never replace worshiping sincerely. Why do we worship? Why do we come out to worship? Just to hear old guys talk about stuff they think they know? No, we come out to worship because we know who God is and he's worthy of worship and no one else is worthy of it. We come out to worship God because it's the right response of fearing God, which you find out through worship is really loving God. And I'll get to that. We worship God because he's worthy of worship and we know him and we can see his worthiness. It's proclaimed. It's been made known to us. It's been called out into our hearts by the Spirit of God who is God. Worship is the first and most essential act of fear. Worship transforms fear into love. That's why we sing. And the law of God becomes the delight of the child of God. David sang of these things. He wrote songs. He wrote, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. I'm not mad that you get to give the orders, the ultimatums. In this very thing, the watchfulness of the failures of others, better men, that drives us to the Proverbs, that drives us to hide them away in our heart. That's why Solomon goes right into the desires of the flesh when he writes, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Who knew that Solomon was the first one that said, Just say no? <laughs> it was him. Who was it? Um, Reagan's wife that said that. She stole that from Solomon. And so, and God, guess what? If she did, I, I think that's good. <laughs> And so the psalmists sing of it. And so they praise God in song. It's their delight. We read again, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. Who knew that commandments made you wise? But they do. That's why wise children follow the commandments of their parents. For they are ever with me, he writes. Your commandments are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Friends, I know some kids right in this room who were smarter than the teachers that sought to taught them in college, or sought to teach them in college, I guess I should say. I guess they're smarter than me too. Um, your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. And so we have the Proverbs, the ancient wisdom that threads a theological needle that we need to understand, friends. All sin is done in a boldness that should have been averted by a healthy fear of God and a healthy hatred of sin. Yet even the great saints forget to fear, and so do we. So what was it that drove them back to a right path before God? It was this residual fear that did it. Fear is a recognition of awesomeness. That's what it is. It's unfortunate that in our language we have rendered such potent words meaningless through overuse. Friend, awesome is way overused, isn't it? I mean, awesome should not be used to describe an entertainer or a new pair of sneakers, right? Awesome, dude! It's not a devotional statement when you hear it that way. It's almost necessary to devise new words that indicate the greatness of God. Although great can't be used either. You notice everything's great today? 
The other day, I asked, a, I asked a guy, can I get you a drink? And he said, water would be great. So, I mean, if a drink of water is great, I really don't think we say God is great. Really, we should say God is great and say, don't talk about water on the same level as God. So to speak of such trivial things as awesome and great leaves us with depleted adjectives to describe the real greatness, the real power, the real uniqueness of God. That's why you notice the descriptions of God, and I was going to include a, a few of them here in the, in the scriptures, they're not really with a word. They're with a paragraph or a whole psalm, which is a song, right? You can't just describe God with a word. Verses 8 and 9 say, my, hun, my, my son, hear the instruction of a father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Fathers and mothers are essential elements of the Christian faith friends. If our faith isn't multi-generational, then what is it? If we can't hand it down to our children. As we noted, there's an order to life, and it's a divine order. God comes first, and the fear of God with him. Genuine, we might say legitimate authority, comes with genuine, legitimate love. And so God, who is the ultimate, or rather the perfect authority, ordains in our lives secondary, imperfect authorities. Friends, your parents are not perfect. No objections? I thought my kids were going to stand up and say, not so. (laughs) But um, your parents aren't perfect. God is. He's the perfect authority, but he's ordained imperfect authorities. And one of them is government. All right? There are certain imperfect authorities that God has ordained. And so parents are our first governors, friends. They're our first teachers. They're our first instructors. They're our first priests. They go between us and God and fill a gap there. They are without a doubt our first experience with deity. God is continually, the scriptures are continually comparing the role of fathers to the role of God in the life of the believer. Rightly oriented believing parents are our first experience with authority. And the rightly oriented child recognizes the inseparable nature of love and authority. They're the Siamese twins of our theology. Love and authority go hand in hand. We learn to love the very thing we fear and to fear the very thing we love. You know, I've heard men say, I don't want my children to fear me. I want them to love me. It's unbiblical to assume that they would do one without the other. You know, let me tell you, I've had, you know, the whole idea of the parent trying to be the friend to the child. Well, that's a great thing, eventually. But when the child's little, he's got enough friends. He needs a father. And he's craving your correction of him. He's craving it. It's your embrace. It's not restricting him. It's freeing him. It's giving him the liberty to turn away from things that can hurt him and things that offend God and other people, frankly. The love of the parent, apart from fear of parental authority, will diminish into a disorderly view of all life and love and learning. And don't put words in my mouth here. I always warn against this. Don't enlarge upon the concept by assuming that authority refer to despotism. What if he overuses his authority? Look, that's an exception, and, and we love doing that. We love hearing a rule and then right away coming up with an exception in our mind so, so we really don't have to obey the rule. 
But that's disorderly teaching. Learn the rule first. The exceptions come around and take care of themselves. All right? Parents are an authority to their children, and children like it that way. So when you discipline him when he's young, he can be your friend when he's older. That's how it works. My three boys are my closest friends. Their counsel I take heed to as much as anyone's. And I call them my royal counsel and my truest friends. And I stole that from a Leonardo DiCaprio line in a, in a, in a movie. But um, he, he was Louis XIV. Uh, go watch the movie. You'll, you'll, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, so don't put words in my mouth. I'm not talking about despotism. When we say husbands, when we say wives, submit to your husbands. Well, what if he's really mean? We're not talking about that husband. We're talking about a rule. We're not talking about an obvious exception, all right? We know that the scriptures are the source of teaching. Parents and fathers in particular are compared with God, who is our heavenly father. And so the scriptures accuse us of forgetting this relationship. You know, for my lifetime, I've got to believe that for, and I'm 65 as I stand here, I've got to believe for, for half of my life, no one questioned any of this stuff. Kids were bad, they got spanked or yelled at, or corrected loudly, and no one was like apologizing all the time for it. It was your role. It was good. Look how good I turned out. And now we're, we're so afraid of damaging everything. The scriptures accuse us of forgetting that relationship, and they're correct. Listen to what we read from the book of Hebrews, the New Testament. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But listen to this, friends. If you're without chastening, which is correction or punishment, or admonishment. If you're without chastening, you are illegitimate and not sons. It legitimizes the love between father and son, or mother and son and daughter. It legitimizes it, the chastening, the correction. It's not, it's part of the love, friends. It's not contrary. It doesn't work against it. It's part of it. It's the embrace of a loving father. Friends, it's the embrace of a loving God. So if you endure chastening, God will deal with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? He couldn't even conceive that somewhere in the world there was a father who wouldn't correct his son. That's the whole point. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Chastening, enduring chastening, I should say, is the path to holiness. Take particular notice of this next statement. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, 
parents, we got young people here. I used to teach this all the time when all our kids were young. If a child likes the chastening, it's not chastening. It's got to have an element of pain in it. It's got to be unlikable. Or he'll say, Daddy, chasing me again. (laughs) It has to be painful, and painful with an eye to a return to former joy when the punishment phase is over. I've seen it too many times, and so have you. We've all seen the sons and daughters who despise legitimate godly authority. We've seen those who make their way back. We've seen those who don't make their way back. And the preacher tells us why. Learning, following, submitting to God and his wisdom has a shelf life, friends. The offer does expire. All right? Like it says on the the box, right? And so when wisdom who Solomon personifies in this chapter, that's a literary convention, he's, he's treating wisdom as though it's a person, a mother, if you will, a woman, right? Because, this is what wisdom says to us, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will laugh when you, at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, When destruction and anguish come over you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. In other words, you haven't built into yourself all of those axioms, all of those commandments of truth. You can't call upon them when you need them. They're not there. They won't serve you as they would have if you learned them in the right sequence at the right time of your life. They'll call on me, but I'll not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The offer expires. Knowledge unlearned, wisdom unheeded cannot help you in your time of need. It's too late. It's just too late. And that message comes from wisdom herself. It's not a message Friends, so much as a course. An instructional course begins with and ends at preconceived points. When you put together a a study, a course, you have a beginning and you have a middle and you have an end, right? In In this case, rather, the fear of the Lord is wisdom 101. It's the first thing. You can't go into greater wisdom without knowing that and knowing how to exercise that fear of the Lord. And that's where Solomon's example becomes so instructive to us And so I'll end with a lengthy quotation from the book of Kings about the the life of Solomon, the man who wrote these things. He was the son of David, the great king of Israel. There was virtual peace on the land for 40 years of David's reign because David was a very godly king and very close to God, and he had this son, Solomon, who was to succeed him as the king of Israel. And he became the greatest king in all Israel. And peace followed, in fact, his name means peace, and it followed him all the days of his life. And so the young Solomon was a good and respectful son of his father David, but not without temporary excursions into idolatry. And so from one of the high places of pagan worship, the God of his father appeared to him. So Solomon, the young Solomon, goes up to engage in false worship of idols on a mountain, and God meets him there. And corrects him. And guess what? Solomon knows who he is. He's heard so much about him. 
And so God says, ask, what shall I give you? You know, isn't that just like God? Ask, what shall I give you? I remember one time when we were kids, my grandmother lived across the street. And we'd just go over there because she was there all the time. We were little and we'd go across the street and we'd come in and we'd sit down at the table just to talk to grandma and grandpa. And she'd start, she'd start getting a little like nervous and looking around and she'd say, what can I give you? What can I give you? It was just the grandmother's love. She, she had to express her love by outpouring something, which was usually food. But she, she would do that. She would, she would labor over giving something of value to the people she loved. And here's God, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. In other words, I've received the, I've received the uh, position of king by primogeniture. I was a dynasty from my father, but I've never been taught how to be king. I don't know how to judge anything. I don't know how to legislate or make law. Or give commandments. How do I be king? You made your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. And they're a great people. They're too too numerous even to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I, I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? That was his request. Oh, that a few of our governors and senators would fall on their knees and make that prayer to God. And then we read, the speech pleased the Lord. Solomon said the right thing. It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. And then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have, not, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. In other words, right then and there, Solomon was zapped with a Ph.D., in life. And he said, see, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. I can picture Solomon going, yes, I do know some things I didn't know a minute ago. So the, and so the Lord goes on, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. All, and I have also given you what you have not asked both riches and honor. Isn't that mercy, grace? If he asked for riches and honor, he wouldn't have got it. But he asked for wisdom. Friends, when you get wisdom, the the riches and the honor come with it. So that there shall not be anyone like you among all the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments... 
It's a condition, friends. You see the word if. It's a conditional clause. You're the smartest guy. You'll be blessed forever if you walk in my ways. As your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and indeed, it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings. And then what did he do? I told you last week, the great spiritual things. He made a feast for all of his servants, and he marked the day when he received the wisdom God blessed him with. And so the king went straight to the source, or rather the source came to him. His knowledge and discernment became legendary throughout the world, and he judged his people in righteousness, and peace was upon the land. And so he spent his time writing down the thousands of Proverbs to instruct the godly and to bring wisdom and godly direction to all who would heed them. It has been said that Solomon penned 3,000 Proverbs. Sadly, not all extant today. Our Father, we ask that you would give us discerning minds, O Lord. Place in us the original fear of God, O Lord, that is recognition of your glory and your majesty, that is a statement of devotional praise to you, O Lord, and also a pledge that we will remain submissive to all of your commandments, Father, as your loving sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Amen.